Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 Part 2 of Bert Norton it begins with a lyric which especially defies the commentary. I will read it. I think the uh, it sets up what comes later, and it is a celebration of the Incarnation, or the world in which the Incarnation is the central mystery. It's the celebration of the actual as it, as it gives us access to the real. And it begins this way. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. Now, I would be willing to give Eliot the Nobel Prize for Literature on the basis of those two lines. <laughs> There, there are several other couplets that would uh, <laughs> merit the same, the same uh, acknowledgement. But as a celebration of the mystery of the incarnation, garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. Now the axle tree, I, where I, I tell you where I think Eliot got this from Milton's Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity. The relevant lines are these. You see, the, the, the Nativity, the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, is the moment of the Incarnation by doctrinal uh, assessment. So the moment that the, the Incarnation becomes the Incarnation, the incarnational reality of the cosmos becomes, becomes most fully manifested is the moment of the birth, the nativity moment. So Milton says this about it. And though the shady gloom had given day her room, the sun himself withheld his wonted speed and hid his head for shame as his inferior flame the new enlightened world no more should need. He saw a greater sun appear than his bright throne or burning axle tree could bear. You see, the classical image of the sun was of the chariot that is driven across the sky every day, and the disk of the sun was the chariot wheel, and the center of the chariot wheel is the axle tree of the, of the, of the chariot. So the new sun that appears at the Incarnation uh, is brighter by far than the chariot of the sun and the burning axle tree. So Eliot picks up on that kind of imagery and says, and, and, and reminds us of the mystery of the incarnation, garlic and sapphires in the mud. Mud is the stuff of creation, you see. Garlic. What a better... If you want to talk about... the, You see, see theologically, doctrinally... You, we have these. We have the Council of Nicaea, for goodness' sake, and you get this. You get the, you know, the, the, the human nature and the divine nature somehow mysteriously commingled without losing any of their, 
the qualities and so on and so forth. And Eliot says, garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. My goodness. What we might have had had Eliot been at the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> huh? The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars, appeasing forgotten wars. Now, there's, there's a... By the way, this is variously presented. I'm not sure which is the final text. Sometimes the text will say, and reconciling forgotten wars, and, and other texts will say, appeasing forgotten wars. The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars and reconciles forgotten war. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph are figured in the drift of stars, ascend to summer in the tree. We move above the moving tree in light upon the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boarhound and the boar pursue their pattern as before but reconciled among the stars. This lyric has such texture. I mean, it's garlic and sapphires and wires and scars and limps and arteries and trees and leaves and boarhounds and it's texture. It's the mystery of the incarnation in its in its, uh, in its physicality. And at the transfiguration scene, Peter said, how about if I build three tents right here and we'll just stay right here? <coughs> See? Because if, if it ever happens, we want to stay right there. And the impulse to stay is, the, is what... It's what cuts it off. In the transfiguration story, Peter says, how about if I build three tents right here and Moses and Elijah disappear? So, poem says, and there they were behind us reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. And now, you see, we leave what, in part, what Eliot wants us to, to, to experience is the origin and the goal at the same time, to put us in touch with the origin so we can long for the goal, but also experience that we are right now exiles in the journey from the origin <coughs> to the goal. And comes along this same bird which led us into this place, which now says, go. And at the very moment when we have decided to stay, and we begin to feel the children hidden excitedly containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. 
time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end which is always present. So, this whole section began and concludes with a reworking of Augustine's reflection on time and the mystery of time. And in the middle of it, we visit in our echo to the poem a primordial place and rediscover, one hopes, the little children's dower and the original rapture and longing. Part two of Bert Norton it begins with a lyric which especially defies the commentary. I will read it. I think the it sets up what comes later and it is a celebration of the Incarnation or the world in which the Incarnation is the central mystery. It's the celebration of the actual as it, as it gives us access to the real. And it begins this way. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. Now, I would be willing to give Eliot the Nobel Prize for Literature on the basis of those two lines. <laughs> There, there are several other couplets that would uh, <laughs> merit the same, the same uh, acknowledgement. But as a celebration of the mystery of the incarnation, garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. Now the axle tree, I, where I, I tell you where I think Eliot got this from Milton's Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity. The relevant lines are these. You see, the, the, the Nativity, the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus is the moment of the Incarnation by doctrinal uh, assessment. So the moment that the, the Incarnation becomes the Incarnation, the incarnational reality of the cosmos becomes, becomes most fully manifested is the moment of the birth, the nativity moment. So Milton says this about it. And though the shady gloom had given day her room, the sun himself withheld his wonted speed and hid his head for shame as his inferior flame the new enlightened world no more should need. He saw a greater sun appear than his bright throne or burning axle tree could bear. You see, the classical image of the sun was of the chariot that is driven across the sky every day, and the disk of the sun was the chariot wheel, and the center of the chariot wheel is the axle tree of the, of the, of the chariot. So the new sun that appears at the Incarnation uh, is brighter by far than the chariot of the sun and the burning axle tree. 
So Eliot picks up on that kind of imagery and says, and, and, and reminds us of the mystery of the Incarnation. Garlic and sapphires in the mud. Mud is the stuff of creation, you see. Garlic. What a better... If you want to talk about... the, You see, see theologically, doctrinally, uh, you, we, have these, we have the Council of Nicaea, for goodness sake. And you get this, you get the, you know, the, the, the human nature and the divine nature somehow mysteriously commingled without losing any of their qualities and so on and so forth. And Eliot says, garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. My goodness. What we might have had had Eliot been at the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> Huh? The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars, appeasing forgotten wars. Now, there's, there's a, by the way, this is variously presented. I'm not sure which is the final text. Sometimes the text will say, and reconciling forgotten wars, and, and other texts will say, appeasing forgotten wars. The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars and reconciles forgotten war. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph are figured in the drift of stars, ascend to summer in the tree. We move above the moving tree in light upon the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boarhound and the boar pursue their pattern as before but reconciled among the stars. This lyric has such texture. I mean, it's garlic and sapphires and wires and scars and lymphs and arteries and trees and leaves and boarhounds and it's texture. It's the mystery of the incarnation in its in its uh, in its physicality, and the next part of the poem is the same mystery, now presented with the serenity of uh, and leanness of a mystical assessment. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline except for the point the still point there would be no dance and there is only the dance I can only say there we have been but I cannot say where and I cannot say how long for that is to place it in time So the incarnation is uh, the moment, any moment, 
in which the actual gives us access to the real. It's the moment historically of the Jesus event. It's a moment in the life of each of us when suddenly uh, time gathers and uh, we are at the still point where the dance is. And then Elliot goes on to describe that moment. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light, still and moving. You see, all of this has to be expressed in, uh, in uh, paradox being what it is. All of it has to be expressed in these uh, in these paradoxical terms. Erebum without motion. Erebum, German word meaning uh, elevation or exaltation, but without motion. Erebum without motion, concentration without elimination. Both the new world and the old made explicit, understood in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror. Yet the enchainment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation which flesh cannot endure. So the bird says, go. Go, 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 said the bird. When, when, when that, that moment is, is completed and one returns to uh, the more familiar routine of life. It's inevitable. And we return to the enchainment of past and future and uh, the, the weakness of the changing body, the nature of, of the incarnation, these moments come and go. And the final passage in this section, these part two, Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beats, the moment in the drafty church at smokefall be remembered. Involved with past and future only through time is time conquered so to be in time is not to be conscious but it's being able to remember the drafty church at smokefall or the rose garden or the arbor where the rain beats and to be put in touch with the longings that were stirred there 
that connects us with the journey ahead. What is remembered, says the poem, is, is involved with past and future. I go back to the memory of the rose garden, not in order to stay there, because the bird will say go, but in order to remember that I have a longing for something and to turn that longing and to, and to bring that longing into my present existence. I said these are poems composed by a sacramental consciousness that require some kind of sacramental sensibility to, uh, on the part of the reader. I think he is trying to encourage us to, uh, to recognize what, what we might call the sacramentality of everyday existence. The, the fact that, the, uh, that our actual lives, our actual phenomenal lives are shot through with the mystery because this is an incarnating cosmos. Uh, and we never know when the moment will come, the still, the, 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 the still point in the turning world, when it will reveal itself to us. But, but the expectation that it might uh, is something we ought to have with us. And the, and the keen memory of the moments when it has to keep us reminded of the fact that we live in that kind of a cosmos and we live in the presence of the community of saints. Uh, and at any moment, the drained pool may be filled with water out of sunlight. And maybe we go back to the New Testament word for conversion, sometimes translated repentance, which is the word metanoia. Metanoia has to do with uh, a, an altered mind, but, but really an altered set of perceptions. The implication uh, of the word metanoia is that uh, after an event has occurred, uh, that event is so is so uh, so reorders our sensibilities that we begin to experience moment to moment experience in a different way. Uh, one has a new approach to life and a, and a new set of sensibilities. I've been using the term sacramental consciousness uh, loosely, and I continue to use it loosely because I'm afraid to use it uh, any, in any other way, but I, but I would say that the way I'm using it has affinities with the idea of metanoia, which is that one begins to use one's sensibilities differently. And as a result of that, um, an opening up of, of what one is taking in and uh, a broadening and deepening of one's perceptive capacity, the world begins to become much more interesting and much more dangerous and much more alive, not in the primitive sense, uh, but in a fully conscious sense of being filled with possible incarnations and possible epiphanies. So sacramental consciousness, I'll continue to use that term, sacramental consciousness perceives the sacramentality of ordinary experience, or at least uh, expects that ordinary experience may at any moment uh, break open and the actual will become a conduit for the real. Sacramental consciousness is both a product of and a prerequisite for a full appreciation of the formal 
Christian sacraments. The role that those sacraments play, as I see it, is that they help bring us into this state of consciousness, this sacramental state of consciousness. If it's unlikely that we're going to uh, fall into the sacramental state of consciousness riding on the subway or on the bus or walking down the street or in the middle of a busy day, perhaps if we set a moment aside that's highly liturgized and structured and surrounded with certain uh, uh, sense provocations uh, and a community of loving and forgiving fellows, uh, there's a possibility that in that situation we might trip up and uh, fall into a kind of sacramental consciousness for a moment or two. And uh, that may be the beginning of something. Now, the purpose, of course, is not, as I understand it, is not cultic, it's not to, uh, to, to have it all happen in that context, but the purpose is, is, is cosmic, is eventually to bring that kind of consciousness to bear. Uh, one could say uh, it's that really is the full consciousness the consciousness a consciousness that is trusting and loving and open and expectant of uh, of wonders is is a full consciousness I've said this thing many times but I always love it uh, Abraham Maslow said I never could understand speaking of the scientific uh, modality he said I never could understand uh, why it is that people thought they could they could uh, know something better by not loving it than by loving it. Um, so sacramental consciousness is another kind of, uh, of conscious acuity which uh, brings us into more intimate contact with our daily, momentary, ordinary, actual uh, experience. In the Christian tradition, there's this notion of kenosis, which is self-emptying. So the, the, the idea of a, a canonic experience is that, is that I don't approach moment-to-moment -moment experience unconsciously preoccupied with what's in it for me. Because, ironically, the what's in it for me is the very thing that keeps anything from being in it for me. Uh, anything from really coming into me, really changing my life, really opening me up. What's in it for me? So I'm just massaging this idea. What do you, what, what, it seems to me what Eliot is trying to do is write a poem under very unusual circumstances, write a poem that's kind of a cross between a, between a literary and a liturgical event, which not only recommends to us states of consciousness that are more or less foreign to us, but actually tries to induce those consciousness in the course of the poem itself. So sacramental consciousness, to go back to that, is the consciousness that expects, that knows that, that, that it's living, to use Christian ways of talking about it, that knows that it's living in an incarnational universe, that knows that, that uh, the divine uh, is breaking into the ordinary, that knows that the actual experience can at any moment become a, become a manifestation of the real and begins to attend to the world that way. William Blake said, uh, to see a world in a grain of sand, a heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. So sacramental consciousness or uh, a... Uh, 
transformed consciousness, a metanoia would be a consciousness that affects that, that knows that to be the nature of the situation. There's a passage off-quoted and, uh, and somewhat controversial passage in the letter to the Hebrews which defines faith. Uh, knowing very little Greek, I have taken the uh, opportunity to translate this for you in my own translation. Uh, I think, I think uh, somewhat faithfully. My translation of it is this. Now faith is the reality of what is longed for and the conviction regarding things not always seen. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, uh, wouldn't it be odd if, uh, if um, in their heart of hearts uh, all human creatures have longed for eternal life and there never was one? Uh, how, 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 how odd that such a longing would be so universal uh, if the thing for which the longing uh, is directed uh, had no existence whatsoever. Well, faith is the reality of what is longed for. As to say, right now, the reality right here for what is longed for. And the conviction regarding things not always seen. Uh, the awareness that th- though one may not see it or, or experience it sensually right this moment, uh, that, that has more to do with my capacity than with the nature of things. In, the, in this definition, regardless of whose translation you use, faith is not, a, is not an acquisition, but faith is, uh, is a uh, state of consciousness. Faith is a way of being. It's an, it's a, a, an approach to life. And it involves, as with this canonic thing we mentioned a minute ago, it involves letting go of self-reference. The question we want to ask, because Elliot is so concerned with time in the four quartets, we want to ask, what are the conditions that uh, encourage a sacramental consciousness, and what are those which discourage it? And to, and to explore that before we get into the poem, I wanted to quote to you uh, Martin Buber. The Jewish Bible has always approached and still approaches every generation with the claim that it must be recognized as the document of the true history of the world. That is to say, of the history according to which the world has an origin and a goal. The Jewish Bible demands that the individual fit his life into this true history so that I may find my origin in the origin of the world and my goal in the goal of the world. But the Jewish Bible does not set a past event as a midpoint. And here he's making the distinction, I think, between the Jewish and the Christian Bible. The the Jewish Bible does not set a past event as a midpoint between the origin and the goal. It interposes a movable, circling midpoint which cannot be pinned to any set time, for it is the moment when I, the reader, the hearer, the man, catch through the words of the Bible the voice which from earliest beginnings has been speaking in the direction of the goal. The Christian tradition posits a midpoint, the the Jesus event, but it also requires of us a, a 
movable circling midpoint, which occurs, as Buber says, when I, the reader, the hearer, the man, catch through the words of the Bible the voice which from earliest beginnings has been speaking in the direction of the goal. Or to put it another way, the still point. A moment when there is a conjunction so that the so that the uh, midpoint between the origin and goal is in my life uh, a possible occurrence, possible something that happens. One would hope uh, occasionally in one's life a convergence of the of of uh, time and eternity. One way of stating what Eliot's doing in the Four Quartets is to say that he is trying to reintroduce to us an origin, a midpoint, and a goal. In the origin, uh, in Burnt Norton, he takes us to the garden, the rose garden. And then later on, he suggests uh, parallels to it, the arbor where the rain beats and the drafty church's smoke fall. So he returns us to this place that can put us in touch with where the spirit first began to quicken the origin and then he takes us to the to the midpoint the still point in the turning world and he explores that and comes back to it again and again and then in terms of a goal he he treats the goal as paradoxical throughout the four quartets in my beginning is my end the end is where we start from moses said uh, choose life so that you may live in the love of God and in English that phrase has a very interesting ambivalence ambiguity uh, the love of God what does that mean uh, if I live in the love of God does that who's who's wh- what's the subject and the object of that uh, of that reference uh, does that mean am I living is it God who's loving me or me who lo- loving God See, how does one live in the love of God well, it's not a question that can be answered. Pierre Khan said, it is, God, it is God whom every lover loves in his beloved, and it is also God in each of us who does the loving. So living in the love of God is one of these strange things. It's the origin and the goal. It's the thing that first awakened us, put us on some journey, and it's where we're headed. I wanted to quote... A little one of my favorite poems of William Butler Yeats, little tiny poem. Um, and the first line of the poem, he speaks about the uh, philosopher, English philosopher John Locke. Uh, John Locke was a uh, Enlightenment empiricist who was uh, was certain that he was uh, cutting away all of the hocus pocus and getting down to the real facts. Uh, and um, his name is associated with uh, enlightenment empiricism and so on. So, if you ask John Locke, uh, what, what are you doing? He would say, I'm getting, I'm getting rid of all this mystification. But the poet Yeats saw it another way. His poem goes like this. Locke sank into a swoon. The garden died. God took the spinning jenny out of his side. The garden died. God took the spinning jenny out of his side. 
Well, when the garden dies, when our sense of an origin and a goal uh, dies, our sense of of a of something some other kind of experience breaking into chronological time dies with it. We get the spinning jenny, which is a time-saving device. I, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by time-saving devices, so I, I have to walk gingerly here. When we're reduced to a world, a temporal world that is completely dominated by the chronological, we end up trying our best to save time. Now, ancient spend a good deal of their energy trying to be saved from it. And here we are trying to save it. Eckhart, well, Eliot starts the, the section, section three of the Burnt Norton with these words. Here is a place of disaffection. Time before and time after in the dim light. Eckhart says, in eternity there is no before and after. What happened a thousand years ago, what will happen a thousand years from now, and what is happening now is one in eternity. If there's no, if there's no eternal dimension, no timeless dimension or atemporal feature of our experience of time, then we are stuck without a present, ironically. The present, what makes, you know, the, we, we, we think and talk a lot about being in the here and now. Well, what gets us into the here and now, I think, is the possibility, realizing that there is a possibility that in this here and now, there may be a revelation, there may be a breakthrough, there may be a epiphany. Uh, that the actual may become transparent to the real, that somehow eternity might break into time. But if we have not, don't have that sense, then we can't be present, ironically, I think. We're robbed of a present. So what we have, in Eliot's terms, is time before and time after, and a, and an, and a nanosecond in between them which we never experience. And he says, um, it is a place of disaffection. We have, again, disaffection is an interesting word because it carries so many connotations, but we, it's Eliot coming back again to remind us that our problem is that we have lost our affections. Or, in a classical sense, we have lost the, the true sense of affectivity. We we don't we uh, have we, we we don't know how to connect. It's a fragmentation. It's a fragmentation that we can recognize psychologically by a, a disaffection, and and uh, temporally by time before time after. It's a fractured cosmos. In earlier poems, Eliot had measured the uh, cultural uh, problem in terms, uh, psychologically, in terms of marriage and relationships. And in the four quartets, he's he's trying to explore the uh, the uh, 
the, the religious solution to that problem in terms of time, but in both instances he deals with the problem of disaffection. There is a loss of sacramental consciousness in the early poems and, and when he turns to it in these poems, a failure to expect that the actual become a conduit for the real. In the early poems, I think he turned to romance and to marriage and relationships because uh, that's the last place sacramental consciousness will, that's the last retreat for sacramental consciousness. Where, where, where it's drying up, that'll be the last place it dries up because there you have, among other things, hormonal uh, enhancements uh, to, the, to the operation. So there is, one would think that... Uh, if it's if one if one can't be sacramentally aware in the presence of the beloved, then all hope is gone. This is what it would be like. This is what sacramental consciousness consciousness would be like uh, were it operating properly. This, I think I, this is a poem from Rumi, 14th century Persian poet Rumi. He said, "God's joy." moves from unmarked box to unmarked box, from cell to cell, as rainwater down into flower bed, as roses up from the ground. Now it looks like a plate of rice and fish. Now a cliff covered with vines. Now a horse being saddled. It hides within these till one day it cracks them open. That's a very incarnational poem, see. That's a poem in touch with the incarnational nature of existence. Now, what Eliot recorded in the earlier poems is that not only was it not there in a plate of rice and fish, it was not there in the eyes of the beloved, for goodness sake. I mean, things were so bad. And we had so lost touch with sacramental consciousness that the one last holdout uh, was no longer a place for it. And he wants to try to bring us back into that state of consciousness, I think. Uh, the other example of that state of consciousness I like is something that somebody said about Thoreau. I love this. They said, um, uh, Thoreau never looked at a leaf without wanting to turn over a new one. <laughs> <laughs> But you see that kind of reciprocity, that kind of... Or, or the other example of that is the Rilke poem about the, about the archaic torso of Apollo. You know, There is no place on it that does not see you. You, you must change your life. <laughs> see? That's, that's realizing the interconnectedness of, of experience. See? Not disaffection. But... Uh, okay. So let's just turn to the first first uh, uh, eight or ten lines of section three. Here is a place of disaffection, time before and time after, in the dim light. Neither daylight nor darkness. I'm going to fill this in a second. Neither daylight nor darkness. Neither the one nor the other. Neither the 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 via positiva, the, via, the positive way, the affirmative way, uh, nor the via negativa, the, the 
way of renunciation. Neither daylight investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadow into transient beauty with slow rotation suggesting permanence, nor darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation, cleansing affection from the temporal, neither plenitude nor vacancy. Now, there you have it. We, we, we either have to be full or empty. That's just it. Otherwise, we get spewed out. If I can mix... Is that a, a mixed metaphor? <laughs> uh, being full and being empty accomplish the same thing. See? They accomplish the same thing. And it doesn't matter. Eliot has said that before. Either way, it doesn't matter. And... and uh, and one way may follow another, or, or a person may take one of the ways all one's life. But they, 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 if we pursue it, either way will do. But he says, we live in a time that is neither of those. It's the dim light. It's not light, lucid light, nor darkness where we can uh, purify the soul. It is dim light. And a place of disaffection, let me just turn, return for a second to the place of disaffection. The loss of affections, the increasing inability to make commitments, to say yes to something. We won't say yes to, to, to the world or to uh, another or to a moment until it says yes to us. But it won't say yes to us until we say yes to it. So there we're just kind of stuck at this. A place of disaffection. Before and a, Time before and after, no real present, a kind of clockwork sense of time. Thomas Merton says, said, uh, said delusions are the uh, devices that... The, that, that uh, the desperate use in order to avoid a confrontation with their despair. So if we have nothing to go on, no, nothing to uh, infuse us with longing and hope except the chronological, then we're either going to have to despair eventually or enter into one after another of the delusions which, is, which, are, which are avoidances of the despair. Uh, Yeats had a moment of despair, which which uh, coincided with the moment of despair a lot of people had. Uh, he registers it in a poem called uh, entitled "1919," which was a good time for despair in in Western civilization, right after World War One, and um, the great hope that ha- that was that existed at the turn of the century about where Western civilization was going. Uh, in its in a purely chronological sense, uh, was devastated by World War One, and Yeats was among many who were devastated by it. It was among many who were unable to to uh, to uh, uh, resubmerge in some myth about where it was going. And he says, I just quote a few lines from 1919. He says, "Who can read the signs?" nor sink unmanned into the half-deceit of some intoxicant from shallow wits. Knows no work can stand. 
But is there any comfort to be found? Man is in love and loves what vanishes. What more is there to say? We who seven years ago talked of honor and of truth shriek with pleasure if we show the weasel's twist, the weasel's tooth. It just, he, he just, he's noting how quickly civilization turned into this bloody affair. Seven years ago, he said, we were proudly walking around talking about where it was all going. And like that, we became criminals. So I, mention, I, I bring that in. It's just the one that happened to occur to me when I, when, uh, I read these lines from Eliot uh, of despairing at the chronological the hope that we invest with once we have bleached the, the sense of the eternal out of our everyday experience, then the only place we have for our hope to go is the chronological. And uh, we will be, we will that that hope will be will be uh, destroyed time and again. I'm quoting a lot more people than Eliot. I should get on with Eliot. But one, one more from Beatrice Bruteau. She says, By means of a little limited altruism, mostly restricted to families or co-religionists or compatriots, together with a good deal of stimulation of pride and greed and large quantities of fear, we have managed to put together a weak and wobbly facsimile of community. But a balancing off of selfishness an instable equilibrium of egotisms, even if it does not corrode into crime and explode into war, is not yet real life-sharing, is not true love, is not genuine community, and it is not expected that it should be. Human nature cannot save itself. <laughs> you, or to, 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 to change the the uh, metaphor to the temporal one. Uh, if we try to solve the temporal, chronological problem in terms of chronology, we simply exacerbate it. And I think Elliot is on to that. We have to open up and let some other sense of what's at work here come into play. So, he said, the modern world is neither day nor night, neither plenitude nor vacancy, neither fullness nor emptiness. Either of those would be great, but it's something else. Only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction. Now, there, now this was written... I want to call, call your attention to this. This was written before shopping malls. Um... But it was not written before subways. It was actually written in the subway. This is a reference to, we know from, from some other thing, uh, to a subway journey that Elliot took uh, often from the Gloucester Road station into London. And he goes down into the subway, either on the lift or the elevator or the escalator, and, uh, and, and there sees this sort of world that's neither this nor that. And uh, he, he, in, as two trains pass in a dark tunnel and the lighted cars of each train uh, flash by, you get this flicker. Neither plenitude nor vacancy. 
It's a kind of limbo, you see. It's neither daytime nor night, neither community nor solitude, but a sort of flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces. Isn't that it? Not fear-ridden, but time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction. Filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time. Wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before and time after. Eruptation of unhealthy souls into the faded air, that means a belch. At the end of the subway ride, these Souls come up out of the subway tunnel, you see. So they are vomited out onto the streets again. Eruptation of unhealthy souls, the torpid driven on the wind that sweeps the gloomy hills of London. Hampstead, Clerkenwell, Hemden, Putney, Highgate, Primrose, Ludgate. Not here. Not here the darkness in this twittering world. What a choice of words, you know, to to begin that passage with flicker and end it with twittering. I would would say there's a, if we want to get a a visceral feeling for what Eliot is describing here, we could could remember, um, or we could impose on this scene the strobe light, uh, and we get both the twittering and the flickering. Uh, A a jerky, uh, disintegrated fragmented sense of time and also a haunting sort of flashing back and forth light and darkness but neither one nor the other. So Elliot goes on. Descend lower. Descend only into the world of perpetual solitude. World, not world, but that which is not world. Internal darkness. Deprivation and destitution of all property. Now, I want to go, before we go on to this, lest we, lest this begin to sound, what he's about to do, begin to sound like uh, some kind of, uh, uh, of um, what, uh, what Nietzsche calls resentment, some kind of uh, uh, rejection of the ordinary. When he says we must go into a world that is not the world, I think we have to read that, or I would suggest we read that. The way Jung, you know, Jung said, uh, when we say world, we usually mean worldview. We're talking about a mental construct, uh, a gestalt, a, a paradigm, a, uh, a, a sense of reality that we carry around that, like a little bubble around our heads. And so when Eliot says we have to, we have to now go into the world that is not world, I think the best way to appreciate that is, is, is that he, he, as with the, the mystics that he was studying at the time he wrote this poem, knew that in order to, to disabuse themselves of, the, of, the, of, a, of a limiting and uh, impo- spiritually impoverishing paradigm, they had to shut the system down, <laughs> you see, and then bring it back up again. And so he says, we must go into a world of darkness, not uh, not, oh, excuse me, world, not world, but that which is not world. 
internal darkness. Desiccation of the world of sense. Evacuation of the world of fancy. Inoperancy of the world of spirit. Now, I want to come back to those later, particularly uh, evacuation of the world of fancy. This is the one way, he says, and the other is the same. Not in movement, but abstention from movement. While the, So, this is done. While the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways of time past and time future. So, he said, we must go lower Everybody else got off the subway train and went up. And Elliot said, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I've been up there too. And up there is as bad as down here. So I'm going to take, take the uh, spiritual escalator down further. Because the world is moving in appetency on its meddled ways. Now, there's some interesting, I think, details that could be brought in here. Uh, appetency means, it's, means the world is appetite-driven. Uh, without an origin and a goal, the, the, one of the questions that, uh, that arises, if we let it arise, is where are we going? Where's this thing going? <laughs> what are we doing here? What's the direction? Does it have a direction? I think Elliot is saying that without that sense of origin and goal and so on, that the direction is, is the one derived from the appetite-driven situation. Uh, the problem is appetites are random uh, unless they're stimulated in certain directions. They're easily stimulated in certain directions. And usually they get stimulated in the directions in which the uh, commercial enterprise is prepared to deal with them. So if you and I have raw appetites that could be uh, that could be attracted to who knows what all uh, and we have shimmering before us day in and day out uh, messages that tell us what to do with our appetites it shouldn't surprise us that the people who paid a lot of money to put those messages on the screen have a shelf full of things uh, for us to, to, to do with our appetites and so Elliot says that, that, to me, comes into this idea of the meddled ways. He's really talking about the subway. Uh, but he's saying, in a way, that the system is built to make the appetite, the, the, the otherwise random appetite-driven uh, human experience seem like it has a direction. Upward mobility. What the hell is that? And then he has an interlude, as he does in each of the quartets in, in, uh, in the fourth section, which is very poetic and uh, uh, does something else. And I want to explore that for a little bit. It goes this way. Time and the bell have buried the day. The black cloud carries the sun away. Before I go on, let me just dilate for a second on time and the bell have carried the day. What is... What he's talking about is, the, is a, as I've said, the sense of time that's dominated by the chronological. But the bell, ironically, was introduced by the monastic tradition as a reminder of the eternal. Now, it was, it was also used shortly thereafter as a, as a, a call to prayer or meals 
or rest or whatever. But even then, it had the the goal of it was to allow the eternal, timeless to come into time. At first, it's rung as a reminder, like this little bell here. See, all of a sudden, it snaps you out of it. Oh, yes, wait. Some other thing, vertical time. Vertical time is breaks in. But even later, when it calls one calls one to prayer or to meals or whatever, it's a way of saying, uh, you. It's it's a way of relieving you of having to pay attention to chronological time. You don't have to look at your watch. The bell will ring. You can be present to the mystery of 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 your of the ongoing experience. In a different way, the bell will ring, and then you'll know it's time to go. But it became the opposite. It became the bell that tolls the dying day. It becomes the clockwork bell. So time and the bell have buried the day. The black cloud carries the sun away. So now the sun is gone. Will the sunflower turn to us? Now, you know, a sunflower, until it gets so stalky that it won't do it anymore, a sunflower follows the sun. Okay. So, the black cloud has carried the sun away. And for Elliot, the sun would be S-U-N-S-O-N, uh, the mystery, the center of the cosmos, all of that. But the black cloud, which is the contemporary miasma, has carried the sun away. So in good humanist tradition, Eliot says, you think the sunflower is going to turn to us? You think now that we have discovered that uh, uh, man is the measure of all things, that that sunflower is going to turn and face us? Will the sunflower turn to us? Will the clematis stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling, chill fingers of you be curled down on us? After the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. I want to do a little bit with the background of this and then go back over the section. The background as I as I see it is this. The sunflower background is Blake's poem entitled The Sunflower from Songs of Experience in which the sunflower is longing for to, to break out of time and, and get in touch with eternity. And that's why it follows the sun across the sky. Blake says, Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. Where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. So the sunflower is the longing for a timeless dimension. And the clematis is a 
is has symbolic associations with the Virgin Mary, and the Virgin Mary is for Elliot the spirit of the church. Uh, you and uh, and the yew is associated with the church from his earlier poem, the yew tree. There are two yew trees in classical mythology that representing death and immortality at either sides of the journey into Hades. And uh, Eliot brings them in his early po earlier poetry uh, and sits them beside the church. He discovered them on a walk one day beside a church, two yew trees, and it connected in his mind as the church which negotiates this transformation between death and immortality. So he associates the yew trees with the church and the Clematis with the Virgin Mary, which is the spirit of the church. I'll read to you from Ash Wednesday. You get a feel for that. Uh, the silent sister veiled in blue is the Virgin Mary, the spirit of the church. The silent sister veiled in white and blue between the yews behind the garden god whose flute is breathless bent her head and signed but spoke no word. Will the veiled sister between the slender yew trees pray for those who offend her? and are terrified and cannot surrender. So the yew trees and the, and the virgin, now the clematis, associated with the, the mission of the church. So the question first is, will the sunflower cling to, uh, turn to us? And then will the clematis spray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling, chill fingers of the yew, be curled down on us, and the chilled fingers of the you there is the are, are, is death. Quickly about the kingfisher. Kingfisher is the halcyon, the bird that that uh, nests at in uh, the week before and the week after the winter solstice, and during those 14 days the sailor has calm weather. So at the darkest time of the year, the kingfisher is nesting. Andrew Marvell has a line about the kingfisher which Elliot is probably has in mind. Halcyon comes in sight, flying betwixt the day and the night. So when he, Elliot goes down to a darker place, he confronts the fact that the sun has been hidden away and the time and the bell have buried the day. And uh, he descends into a place of darkness and then he sees the kingfisher's wing and has another moment of revelation. Uh, George Herbert wrote a poem called Easter Wings. I'll hold up my the copy in my notes here. Um, you can, it's a, it's a, what's called a um, pattern poem. And if, if you turn it this way, you see the pattern. The pattern is, a, is a butterfly, two butterfly wings. You have to turn it on its side to get that. But, uh, so he wrote it like that. But it really is uh, is uh, uh, in a way the Christian mysteries put not only in words but in shape. So, and, and if you took these lines from Eliot's Part Four, Burnt Norton, and centered all of them, you would have something that roughly approximates uh, one of these stanzas from George Herbert's poem. So let me read George, George Herbert's poem, then read Eliot's poem and see what Eliot was trying to do. Now, I'll hold my arms out to indicate the length of the line. Not, you'll get it, but just as I do this, you'll see. Watch what, what a masterful thing Herbert does with this. Lord who createst man in wealth and store, though foolishly he lost the same, decaying more and more, till he became most poor, 
with thee. See, it opens out again. With thee, oh, let me rise as larks harmoniously and sing this day thy victories. Then shall the fall further the flight in me. The flight of wings. Oh, blessed fault. Oh, happy fault. Felix Culpa. Then the fall will further the flight in me. Now, you see how it is? It came down to this terrible, dry, deathly place, and then with thee. It's a moment of epiphany. Opens out. Turns out, the, turns out that, the, that, the, that the drained pool is filled with water out of sunlight. It's that same kind of moment. Second stanza. My tender age in sorrow did begin, and still with sicknesses and shame. Thou didst so punish sin that I became most thin. With thee let me combine and feel this day thy victory. For if I imp my wing on thine, affliction shall advance the flight in me. Isn't that wonderful? It's just, it, it depicts the motion in the Christian economy. I think Eliot has this in mind, and he's cagey enough not to center his lines. But notice how it comes down to the word kill. And on a, we have the, the clutching and clinging and chill, and then fingers of you be curled down to us. That's, that's the grace of the church and offering grace, you see. Fingers of you be curled down to us. After the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still. And I think the word still here means uh, it, it, uh, uh, it, it, it lasts. It's persevering. Still not, not non-motion, but it remains. The light is still at the still point of the turning world. So what he's done is he demonstrated in, in section four of the poem why we go down to a darker place in solitude and the deprivation of sense and so on. Because it's there we get to the word chill and we, and we become... Uh, uh, we, we are available for that, uh, that little jolt that will open us up again. Eliot goes on in section five of Burnt Norton... Uh, literature and music require a chronological sequence. So he begins to explore this. Words move, music moves, only in time. But that which is only living can only die. Now this announces, I think, a revolution in literary... Um, strategy for Eliot. In Canto 24 of the Paradiso, Dante is writing along, telling us what he's seeing and hearing, and he says, My pen leaps and I do not write. Not words nor fantasy can paint the truth. The folds of heaven's draperies are too bright. 
That's a wonderful image. You see, a painter can't paint the draperies unless the folds cast a shadow, unless there's a shadow in the folds, unless there's contrast. But in depicting his paradisal experience, Dante says we come to a point where there isn't enough of that duality, enough of that contrast, and, 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 and one can't do it. Well, I think Eliot is at that same place. What he's, what he's trying to come to grips with is, the, is whether or not poetry can, time-bound as it is, not only point to an eternal truth or a still point or a mystical experience, but actually become the occasion for one. And Eliot goes on to say, Words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. <laughs>